King Belshazzar threw a huge party for a thousand of his princes, and he drank a lot of wine in front of them. While he was under the wine's influence, Belshazzar commanded that the gold and silver equipment that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem's temple be brought to the party so that the king, his princes, his consorts, and his secondary wives could drink out of them. So the gold equipment that had been carried out of the temple, God's house in Jerusalem, was brought in, and the king, his princes, his consorts, and his secondary wives drank out of it. They drank a lot of wine, and they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Right then, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the king's palace wall in the light of the lamp. The king saw the hand that wrote. The king's mood changed immediately, and he was deeply disturbed. He felt weak, and his knees were shaking. The king yelled, calling for the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king told these sages of Babylon, Anyone who can read this writing and tell me its meaning will wear royal robes, will have a gold chain around his neck, and will rule the kingdom as third in command. Then all the king's sages arrived, but they couldn't read the writing or interpret it for the king. Feels like, feels like we've done this story a few times before, right? At this point, King Belshazzar was really frightened. All the color drained from his face, and his princes also were very worried. Upon hearing the commotion coming from the king and his princes, the queen entered the banqueting hall and declared, Long live the king. Don't be so disturbed. Don't be so frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has the breath of holy gods in him. When your father was alive, this man was shown to possess illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the very wisdom of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed this man as chief over the dream interpreters, enchanters, Chaldeans, and diviners. Yes, your father did this because this man, Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, possesses an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight into the meaning of dreams. He can summon ambiguities and resolve mysteries. Now, in light of all that, summon Daniel. He will explain the meaning of this thing. So Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, So you are Daniel, the Daniel from the exiles that my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the breath of the gods is in you, and that you possess illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom. Now, the sages and the dream interpreters were brought before me to read this writing and interpret it for me. But they couldn't explain its meaning. But I've heard that you can explain meanings and solve mysteries. So, if you can read this writing and interpret it for me, you will wear royal robes, have a gold chain around your neck, and will rule the kingdom as third in command. Daniel answered the king, Keep your gifts. Give the rewards to someone else but I will still read the writing to the king and interpret it for him. Listen, your majesty. The most high God gave kingship, power, glory, and majesty to your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the power God gave Nebuchadnezzar, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified of him. He did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, killing or sparing, exalting or humbling. But when he became arrogant, 
acting in stubborn pride, he was pulled off his royal throne, and the glory was taken from him. He was driven away from other humans, and his mind became like an animal's. He lived with wild donkeys. He ate grass like cattle, and dew from heaven washed his body until he realized that the Most High God dominates human kingship and sets it over anyone he wants. But you who are his son, Belshazzar, you haven't submitted, even though you've known all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. The equipment of God's house was brought to you, and you, your princes, your consorts, and your secondary wives drank wine out of it, all the while praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods who can't see, hear, or know anything. But you didn't glorify the true God who holds your very breath in his hand and who owns every road you take. That's why this hand was sent from God and why this message was written down. This is what was written down. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. The meaning of the word Mene. God has numbered the days of your rule. It's over. Tekel means that you've been weighed on the scales and you don't measure up. Perez means your kingship is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar commanded that Daniel be dressed in a purple robe, have a gold chain around his neck, and be officially appointed as third in command in the kingdom. That very same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Now a different story. In 1950, for the second time in a decade, the city of Dallas was in serious danger of racial warfare. The dynamitings of black and middle-class homes had started again. None of the measures adopted after a wave of bombings 10 years earlier had had lasting effect. The tendency of the city for organized and violent white aggression against blacks seemed inelucidable. It was the chain that tied the city to a bloody past. Even more than the rest of East Texas and North Texas, Dallas had been plagued with outbreaks of violence and Ku Klux Klan activity off and on since Reconstruction. At times in the first part of the century, Dallas seemed to be the epicenter of Klan violence in the country, certainly in the Southwest. Dallas commands a part of Texas that is much more Southern, with stronger roots in slave culture than many outsiders realize. But for all the penchant the city seemed to show for sheets and lynching, the commercial ruling class of Dallas had already, in the early 20th century, begun to show a strong inclination for control and pacification. In the late 1920s, a number of leading families in the business community, led by the Dallas Morning News, had driven racial terror back beneath the surface of the city. The Morning News had taken the lead in an anti-Klan campaign that had come at the right moment and had proved enormously effective, almost as if the Klan's own adherents were happy to have an excuse to get out. Yet there was always a sense that violent racism still lived somewhere, enlivened by the bombings of black families in the early 1940s, and now, again, by another wave of dynamite attacks in the early 1950s. 
A special investigation in 1955 by the Texas Attorney General would find strong evidence of a Klan resurgence in East Texas. While the Klan was never mentioned publicly in connection with the Dallas bombings of the early 1950s, the attacks did seem, the more they were investigated, to have strong organized roots, even religious roots, in the middle class and blue-collar white community, a pattern that was all too familiar to those who had lived through the earlier terrors. South Dallas, now almost entirely black, was then only a quarter century ago almost entirely white. The wealthy Jews who had lived along South Boulevard had departed, and the middle-class Jewish and Christian communities were already beginning to pack up and trek north, family by family. But the massive transportation of whites from South to North Dallas was still a few years off. In 1950 and 1951, South Dallas was still the best home many of its white residents had ever known. It was also the embattled border country between the racial tribes, the unsettled terrain where the white tribe and the black tribe fought for territory, and where the rituals of racial tribalism devolved into violence. Even before World War II, before numbers of blacks had the ability to buy and live in good houses, the southern half of the city had been the battlegrounds where blacks had sought to expand their reach. A wave of dynamitings of black homes had frightened the city's business leaders in the early 1940s and had inspired the creation of an evolving series of racial committees to promote dialogue between leaders in the black and white communities. But the racial committees had not turned the trick. Now the bombings had returned with an awful fury, and it was clear that only new, strong new measures could stop them. After the bombings of the 1940s, the city had gone in under some color of the law, now very obscure, and had bought away the homes of black people who had made the mistake of buying property in white neighborhoods. The homes were then rented by the city or sold to white owners, this time encumbered with deed restrictions thick with all sorts of South African formulas for racial composition and distribution, requiring the new owners not to sell to blacks for 50 years or until the block on which their homes stood had become at least 50% Black-owned. In 1944, the city announced proudly that it had turned a tidy profit on several of the properties it had taken from Blacks and resold to whites. By the late 1940s, the Black slums of Dallas were so hideous that they were arousing the consciences of white leaders like Mayor Wallace Savage, and a courageous young retailing executive named Joseph Roos, among others. The white business oligarchy was beginning to admit to itself by then that the black slums of West Dallas, Mill Creek, and elsewhere in scattered sites on the periphery of the city, all throwbacks to Reconstruction, unsoftened by the 20th century, were no longer conscionable and, not incidentally, were no longer good for business. The slums in the area along the Trinity River, called West Dallas, contained less than 20% of Dallas County's population outside of Dallas proper, but accounted for 50% of the typhus, 60% of the tuberculosis, and 30% of the polio in the unincorporated portion of the county. Infant death rates were unmeasured, but were generally believed to be staggering. No water or sewer lines ran to the slums. Water was sold from barrels and people urinated and defecated into holes in the ground. 
Depressions where gravel, gravel had been scoured away for use in construction were filled with water and stood stagnant and swarming with mosquitoes and flies. Families huddled in shacks and sheds made of packing crates and junk. A cruel vice grip dynamic was operating on the population levels of the black slums. The black population citywide was growing at only a modest rate, much less than the rate of white growth, so that the overall ratio of black to white in Dallas had dropped from 17.1% in 1940 to 13.1% in 1950. But as the white community consolidated itself in new areas and forced the scattered ragtag bands of black settlers out of their environs, the population levels of the few slums where blacks were still welcome, often the meanest, were becoming enormously more dense. Eagle Ford in West Dallas, where people were, where property was advertised in the newspaper under the heading Colored Lots, grew by 1,500% during the, much of the decade of the 1940s. Much of the slum property in Dallas was owned by white absentees. Joseph Roos, a director of the Dallas Council of Social Agencies, pasted back the ears of the members of the Dallas Junior Chamber of Commerce in 1951 when he told their assemblage at the Adolphus Hotel that 100,000 human beings in Dallas were living in 36,560 shacks, of which 61.4% were rented from landlords, often at extortionate rents. In Dallas, Roos told the junior chamber, landlords are free to charge extortionate rents because of the critical shortage of Negro housing. The Negro must pay or sleep in the streets, Roos said of foreclosures on lots sold to blacks were common and that some properties were sold over and over again. Establishing a pattern that would reach back and bite the city years later in the battle over homes around the state fairgrounds, the city had begun during the 1940s to whipsaw black homeowners out of a neighborhood of single-family houses near Love Field, the city's main airport. The city first announced that the land on which the black home stood was to be taken under right of eminent domain to be used for airport expansion. And then the city did not take it. The black homeowners were caught in a vice. They couldn't sell to anyone else at a good price because it was known that the property was scheduled for condemnation. The city denied building permits to improve the property on the grounds that the owners were only attempting to inflate the value of their property before the taking. Finally, the only party interested or willing to buy their property was the city, at the city's price. When John Chisholm, a black physician, complained that the city was reselling the property it had bought from blacks for airport expansion to white people for residential use, city manager Charles C. Ford answered that the former black owners were perfectly welcome to come in and bid for their lots back, if that was what they wanted. Of course, some subsequent rezoning had made the land quite a bit more expensive in the interim. He said the land in question was sold because it was no longer in the expansion plans. Today, the runway lights from Love Field run up to within 30 yards of apartment buildings built on that land during the 1960s and 1970s. Many of the people who live in the apartments are black, but they're black renters, not owners. That's the difference. The first explosion came in early February 1950 at night. Oh, wait a minute. No. I wanted to go. 
sorry. It is no wonder that some black families who had acquired enough money to buy new houses hesitated to buy in black neighborhoods. If the neighborhood was not already a vicious slum, it was either destined to become one or more likely was slated for some kind of legal hocus pocus by which the white people would render black held property deeds into dust. But much more to the point, there simply were no new homes available for most black buyers in black neighborhoods. They had to keep renting or go out into a white world that was very frightening indeed. The first explosion came in early February 1950 at night at the home of Horace Bonner, who had bought a house just a few blocks outside a black neighborhood near X-Line Park. Bonner, 57, who worked for a printing company, was asleep inside. Also in the house were his wife and mother-in-law. A car slipped up to the front of the house, an arm reached through a rolled-down window, and an expertly made bomb of dynamite in gelatin form of the type then commonly used in the oil fields eight inches long, wrapped in tape to give its shell just the right thickness, wrapped in newspaper and then wrapped again tightly in a craft paper bag, looped up lazily from the street, spinning slowly through the air and flopping down next to the house where it lay, its serpentine 16-inch fuse flickering red in the night. The Bonners all escaped physical injury, but the front of their beautiful new home, the pride of their lives, the achievement of generations, had been raked and mauled and left in steaming, spitting, rubble and char. So that sets the, the tone of what was going on. This wake of bombings began happening again, again in the 1950s against black homes. And as you kind of heard in some of the others, the city's business elite realized it's not good for the image of the city. It's not good for business. It's, it's, it's not good. They, and they would want to do something about it. So they convene a grand jury, something that, they, that uh, is, is called a blue ribbon grand jury, which um, is not a legal thing. Usually the grand jury, there's supposed to be like a panel appointed by the district attorney, and then they send out summons and they pull back people together. If you look at the names of the people on this list, this was the who's who of the Dallas Citizens Council of the 1950s and some black people too. And the purpose of this was to send a message like, we're going to fix this. This is going to, we're going to, we're going to solve this. Um, and so they begin to investigate and they call witnesses and the Texas Rangers are involved and they're bringing people forward and actually find some of the guys that had been throwing, that thrown the bombs. But after talking to them, it was really clear, like these guys are not behind all of this. Like they may have, maybe they, they maybe they were hired. But, like, they were not – these aren't the ringleaders. So they keep pressing, and they keep going further and further. And then, finally, the grand jury, um, this investigation is, is concluded, and this is what comes out. No sooner that was the grand jury's statement made public than it was clear, given the circumstances, the answer was really the most fantastic one anyone could have possibly imagined. There would be no answer. The grand jury would admit that the conspiracy ran deep in the bowels of the city, and then it would ask to be disbanded. After a year of hoopla, all this terror and writhing, and after everyone in town knew that the investigation had reached into the very gut of the community, the special grand jury was not going to tell Dallas what it had learned. Dallas took that news, that this enormous public mystery had been solved, but that the public would not be made privy to the answers, with the same strange equanimity that it had displayed in the face of the bombings themselves. 
as if everyone knew all the answers anyway, as if silence and abandonment of legal process were what history had shown to be the wiser course, as if the community were relieved to know that this ill-advised experiment in justice had been called off in time. Sounding distinctly like an attempt to mollify contending factions within the grand jury, the report began by declaring that its work was done, but went on to concede that its work was far from complete. Quote, in asking to be discharged, this grand jury does not intend to imply that all who were a part in these bombings and burnings have been indicted. The plot reached into unbelievable places. The acts of certain persons are well known to this grand jury and to law enforcement officers. They were involved as accomplices by confessions of those who actually did the bombings and burning. The report pointed as directly as it could without slandering the people it had just declined to charge. It had said that several of the uncharged conspirators were well known and highly regarded in their communities, which meant the white neighborhoods of South Dallas, as distinct from the more affluent white neighborhoods to the north. There was evidence, the report said, that lay and religious and community groups, through misguided leadership, entered an action, perhaps unwittingly, that resulted in violence and destruction. The grand jury called the bombings unchristian acts. So the district attorney continues to pursue this for a little bit, and they actually do end up indicting and charging somebody that was involved, interestingly, a Hispanic man. Um, and he's brought to trial, and he has an alibi, but it's shaky, and the evidence doesn't line up, and he could probably make a pretty good evidence-based case that he would do it, but they don't really have, like, the best eyewitnesses. But really what sealed the deal for his acquittal was how everyone just came to defend his rightness of mind and his high moral standing. He's just such a good guy. It's not possible. He was acquitted, and that was the end of it. The matter was at an end. The newspapers noted gratefully that the bombings had ceased and editorialized that it was a healthy outcome for all, that the message had been tendered and received, dynamiting black families was not good for Dallas as a whole. And this in itself was a sufficient conclusion to the affair. That there were still guilty parties at large, that the real nature and shape of the guilt had never been measured in a court of law, that the guilt, far worse than merely personal, was communal and political, was not of sufficient concern to merit the risk of further disruption. The bombings had stopped. The matter was closed, not by lot, not by law, but by fiat. The lesson in this for the black community could not have possibly been more sobering. What it meant was that the business leadership of the city, the most powerful men in Dallas, were only able to hold the organized white clan-style violence at bay, never able to bring it to bear, never able to bring it to the bar, to break it beneath the law. On the one hand, perhaps the black community had cause to be grateful that the leadership was there and willing to interpose itself between the black community and its white tormentors. On the other, the black community could not help noticing that the business leadership's willingness to become involved had been triggered not by early threats to blacks, but only at the end by the threat of chaos in the community at large. A chaos so massive it threatened the world of white business and white business plans for the future. 
The outcome then was not a product of law. It was a product of truce and accommodation. It was a social standoff with the black community arrayed on one side, the South Dallas white community on the other, and the business oligarchs in the middle, threatening here, cajoling there, holding things together with political influence. The peace, as it was, was rooted in, it was not rooted in any ultimate appeal to justice. It was rooted in appeals for mercy, appeals to the business community for intercession. It was a peace bestowed and guaranteed by the white business leadership in the interests of commerce. Black people gathered in the quiet of their homes, conferring on what had happened, had to confront this central truth of their lives in Dallas, Texas. The white families around them were capable of banding together to murder them. Neighbors whose children played in adjacent yards were capable of hurling bombs. White teenagers could take delight in threatening the lives of black adults. Yet none of this wrong was wrong enough to bring the machinery of justice into full and complete operation. The lesson to be drawn was that the machinery of justice was not strong enough to confront the problem, that the white people could not keep their own house in order, could not drive back the threats in their own midst to create a true reign of law. So instead, everyone had to live with what was with reality, the alternative, the accommodation. So I read all of that this morning because it is a very uncomfortable history. It's one that, as a proud child of this city, I would rather not talk about. It's actually one that, for most of my life, all of Dallas would rather not talk about. Dallas is supposed to be this amazing, world-class city, a city that exists that has no reason for existence is the old saying a beautiful place created by the philanthropic generosity and the civic mindedness of the wealthy business owners who basically willed this place into existence dallas is in texas but it's not really of texas it's more cosmopolitan than texas it's supposed to be this grand paradise and i grew up believing all this I grew up believing that there was no racial strife in Dallas. I knew about the civil rights movement in the 60s, but honestly, I thought that it didn't really happen here because it didn't really need to happen here because here everything's fine. Everything's great. It's a good city and we get along and we don't have these problems. And then I came across this book. Uh, I don't know when I first heard about it or I first um, but uh, I do remember that it was a very hard to get a hold of. Uh, I managed to find a copy in circulation at the Dallas Library. They had one. Um, and it tells a very different history from the one that I grew up on. Very uncomfortable. And yet reading it, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, oh my gosh. This makes so much sense. Everything going on in, in the city my whole life and now makes so much more sense knowing this. The book was supposed to have been published in 1986, but it was pulled from printing at the last minute. Um, the official reason that the publisher gave were low sales projections, which honestly is probably true um, because nobody wanted to read this book. Um, 
but most likely it was pulled because it makes the city look bad. There's an article in the New York Times in 1986 about this little saga of trying to get the book published, which eventually it got a very short run published by a group in New Jersey. Um, anyway, in the New York Times article, it says black leaders said they were not surprised by the book's fate. It's the Dallas way, says John Wiley Price, a Dallas County commissioner. You can't put Dallas in any bad light. You just sweep things under the carpet instead. It's not just the Dallas way, though. It's, it's kind of universal. We'd all have things that we'd rather not discuss. Which brings me back to today's reading. Right? It's a story that we kind of know. The Bible tells us about a man who ruled Babylon and all its land. Um, but in reading this, the thing that several things jumped out at me that I hadn't noticed before. First of all, because we're going in order through these books, I remember chapter four of Daniel as I come to chapter five. And chapter four is that wacky story of Nebuchadnezzar and where he goes and lives with the beasts and is humbled and then comes back and proclaims God. And, you know, I remember in our discussion last week, we were like, what did they say about this? Did anybody talk about this? What happened after that? And so coming in to read this, I'm like, oh, here's another story about a king that's been humbled. And there's Daniel there, too. We're, you know, the cycle, right? It's like, I wonder if there's a parallel. Well, Daniel explicitly makes the connection. Um, first of all, I love that um, this Daniel in chapter 5 is a different Daniel than what we've seen before, right? The Daniel that's shown that that's in chapter 1 is... You know, he's talking to the guard, and he's like, hey, we don't really want to follow the rules. We're going to do this. And he's, he's firm, but he's very polite and very reverent and respectful. When he's interacting with Nebuchadnezzar, interpreting his dreams, oh, king, I, you know, I'll do my best. Or, you know, or even, even in the last one, he's like, I don't want this to be true for you, but here it is. He's very reverential and respectful and yet fully committed to God. This Daniel, this Daniel is done. He is over it. Like, the first words out of his mouth, because the king's like, I'm going to give you all these things. And he's just like, keep your gifts. Give them to someone else. Uh, every time I start to read that, I'm thinking, he's like, give it to someone who cares. I don't want this. I'm going to read the writing on the wall, and so you listen. And then he retells this story um, from chapter 4. But the thing that gets me is, like, after it, he says, you're his son, Belshazzar. And you haven't learned anything from this story, even though you've known this. You knew this. You knew this story. And you can imagine being Belshazzar growing up and knowing that there's this seven-year period where your dad is just, like, out in the wilderness going, living like crazy. It's like, what if we just didn't talk about this? You know, you're going to come back or just kind of kind of nod at each other and go, okay, it's over. Great. We'll never speak of this again. Let's just pretend like it didn't happen. And I think that's that's what he did. We're just going to ignore this. We're going to sweep it under the rug, and we're going to move on, and we're going to pretend like things are great. And we're going to have parties, and we are going to drink a lot of wine, and we're going to go crazy, and it's going to be good. The other thing that, that jumps out at me in this is when the hand shows up and starts writing, I think he knows. Because he go like, it, there's all these descriptions about how um, – the king's mood changed immediately, and he was deeply disturbed. He felt weak, and his knees were shaking. 
Um, and then later on, when no one can interpret it, um, it says, at that point, he was really frightened and all the color drained from his face. It's like that story's been in the back of his mind. And he's just like, it's not a thing. It didn't happen. We're going to pretend like there's nothing. And then it's just like, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, it's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to me. And it's just the panic. And then as every phase of the cycle of the story plays in, it's like, all right, let's get the interpreters. The interpreters can't do it. Oh, no. Oh, no. What's going to happen? And this is the way the queen has to come in. He's like, just call Daniel already. I don't want to call Daniel. But he does, and Daniel lets him have it. And then he's dead that night. That night. <laughs> um, it was over because he just swept the story under the rug and pretend, pretend like it didn't happen. And so it makes me wonder, how might things have been different if they had talked about Nebuchadnezzar's period of madness more? Had they talked about his lessons learned after that? Had it not been swept under the rug? I can't help but wonder how different Dallas would be. Had we not swept our uncomfortable history under the rug? So let's ask the question here. Have you ever brought up something that was uncomfortable, that uh, that had been swept under the rug, that nobody wanted to talk about? Or have you ever seen any example where, like, people need to talk about this, or we need to talk about this, and just hasn't? And how's that gone? Um, I would say I generally probably fall on the uh, the sweeping uh, under the rug aspect of things. Uh, Nines of the world unite. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as an Enneagram Nine, I'm like, that's eh, fine. We can sit. Not that again. Um, so yeah, that's uh, a pretty common mo for me. Of uh, like, yeah, I don't want to bring that up because it's uncomfortable. So we don't need to talk about it and. Uh, and I can act like it didn't, it wasn't a problem. <laughs> so, yeah, that's definitely, I definitely uh, commiserate for that feeling. <laughs> mm-hmm. My, my Sarah and I have been talking about, um, like my family's tendency to like ignore things or sweep it under the rug and how that, impacts me in different ways mm. and like uh there's this story that i'm not going to tell um that happened to me like 20 something years ago and you know like it kind of got swept under the rug for a long time and only in recent, I'm in that weird cone space. Oh, you're in that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, only like recently I, you know, reached out and I talked to my brother about it. And that was really good because 
you know, I hadn't talked to him about it in 20 something years and it was good to like get to talk to someone who will not exactly there, like had awareness and proximity at that time. Um, it was really good um, for me to like talk about it and, uh, you know, in therapy and stuff, I've been talking about it too. So, so yeah. Hey, Brian. I, with me, um, I, there is, there is, a, there is an uncomfortable truth around my family right now that I kind of feel like I have to work at not sweeping it under the rug because that is kind of what I would prefer to do. But my brother's got a brain tumor. He's had it for 10 years. He's had it for 11 years when they gave him a 10-year diagnosis or prognosis. Um, and things right now are not good for him. He, it's growing again, getting ready to start chemo and radiation. Um, and you guys saw him. He's, he's starting to walk the cane. He's starting to not... And I don't know how to navigate that a lot of the time because there's a part of me that wants to like, let's, let's just pretend that it's not a thing and let's continue to do stuff. And then there's another part of me that's like, you know, we should, we should talk about this and we should be open about it. But then there's another part of me that's like, I don't want to only talk about this and I want to. <sighs> so it's just, it's, it's a struggle, but it's, it's important to, I think for me to, for him to know that like, we know that and to acknowledge, you know, whatever, however much time we have left and to try to enjoy it. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that, but the thing I don't like talking about. I'm heartened um, for the city of Dallas. This book that was barely published in the 80s. Developed, are you, are you raising your hand? Oh, go for it, John. Yeah, uh, what she says uh, reminds me of our family issues. Uh, my stepmother was uh, 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 very adept at uh, dodging issues that weren't all pleasant and happy and lovely. And uh, there was conflict and stress between me and my dad. And she wanted to deny and ignore and, and uh, change the subject and point to, let's go get something to eat now, right now, okay? Yeah, well, we've got nowhere with all that. That's what, that's what you said reminded me of. Right, that like all of your the feeling that you have is like let's just not deal with this at all and pretend like it's not a thing, and yet it makes it worse <laughs> consistently. <sighs> all right. Um. 
so this book that was barely published in the 80s developed a cult following i don't know five six seven years ago um but nobody could get a copy of it and in fact there's a period of time where you go on amazon and you could buy a used copy for like six hundred dollars it was ridiculous um people shared pdfs of this thing there's a twitter account that actually published the thing 280 characters at a time um i remember uh somebody popped up an online store once and it was like here's a here, here, here's an unknown book. Would you like to order it? And so I did, and it was a bootleg copy of this. Um, but a year ago, it actually received an official second printing. Um, a local publisher here in Dallas knew of it, read the, the bootlegs, and contacted the author and the rights owner and got everybody together and made it happen because he said this is important for the city to to read. And it was published. It was published prominently with a lot of fanfare. And right now, there is a major book club going on across the city called Big D Reads, where people are being encouraged to read this book. In fact, there are free copies of this book being handed out at coffee shops and parks and libraries all over the city. And there are events that are scheduled um, where people can come together and discuss the issues that are out of that and what it's, what's going on today and everything around this. So these conversations that that we haven't been having as a city, they're starting to happen. And they're starting to happen more earnestly and, and over and over again. Now, the instinct to sweep it under the rug is still there, though. This is today's newspaper in the opinion section. An op-ed written by former Mayor Tom Leppert that says, Avoiding extremism is the secret to Dallas's success. Um, let's see. He talks about how crazy extremism is going on and how everyone, this nation is so divided and nobody listens to each other. And then he says, against this backdrop, I'm pretty happy with where I have, where I live and I've raised my family. While being far from perfect or totally inoculated from the extremes we see in other parts of the country, we seem to be more the exception than the rule today. So I want to share some observations and a hope about our part of the world. Soon Dallas will be the third largest region in the nation, even though we don't have a lot of mountains or an ocean or other geographic reasons for existing. People and businesses are moving here in big numbers, blah, blah, blah. He goes on to talk about how we just don't have problems here. We don't have problems with police. He talks about how great our police force is. We don't have problems with schools. He talks about how our schools and our parents are in perfect sync. There, there's a couple of isolated incidents in some suburbs, but it's fine. Talks about the great public-private uh, cooperation that we have with our large companies and the people that live here. And then he ends with this nice little anecdote about how um, I play golf with the retired surgeon. Politically, we agree on almost nothing. But in the close confines of a golf cart, we can spend four hours discussing and debating and arguing many issues and laughing about the crazies on both sides. Isn't that the most Dallas sentence ever? Just sweep it under the rug. We don't have problems here. We invest in our police. We invest in our schools. Everything is great. The, the, the businesses that know best for the city are doing what's best for the city, and everything's fine, which stands in stark contrast to this message. So the, the tension is still there, 
And so I guess my encouragement to all of us is to lean into the uncomfortable and to continue to, to look back and reflect on the weird histories that we don't really want to talk about. Because if we don't talk about them, it's not going to end up well for us. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for we thank you for putting up with us. We thank you for continuing to try to teach us the same lessons over and over again as this repetitive structure in Daniel drives home. We thank you for lessons that we could learn from other people. We thank you from lessons that we could learn from our own history or the history of, of those around us. We ask that you open our eyes to the truth. We ask that you open our hearts. We ask that you, you prod us to explore the uncomfortable, to ask the difficult questions, to talk about the things that we don't want to talk about. Because in there we can find healing. In there we can find hope. In there we can begin to, to make things a little bit better and do some of what we're here to do, I guess. In Jesus' name, amen.